Morning, everybody. If you want to keep that um, that Bible passage open in front of you, it'd be good because uh, we're going to look at a few things that weren't read out. It's Luke chapter five and the start of six. I was in Belfast the other day. And uh, I was picking up my mother from the bus, you know, outside of Europa. And there's a fairly high uh, tower block, just a little bit in from it, that's been demolished. I think it was the um, Belfast Metropolitan College before. Yeah. McClintock Street. And they're turning it into student accommodation. But anyway, I was, it, it was an impressive looking building site because it would appear that they're not going to just blow it up and demolish it. Uh, they're actually doing is they've created this artificial mound of earth which the uh, excavators or whatever they're called then drive up into the middle of the sky and take it down piece by piece. And uh, my point or my illustration I suppose if you see it but even if you don't see it I hope you can see it in your head it's this impressive effort at taking down this old building and my point is fairly simple if you want to build something great in place of something that was already existing you don't just ignore what was there previously. You don't just build around it. You can't build on top of it either. You've got to dismantle what was there before. And what we see here today in this passage is exactly that. Last week, we saw Jesus calling some people to follow him. But to follow him to what? To do what? To follow him where? Well, into his kingdom. That's what. And next week... We're going to see Jesus give his famous Sermon on the Mount, where he shows people what life in that kingdom looks like. But today, he's going to get at the the roots of the old system. He's going to demolish the kingdom that currently exists. So, last week we saw the crowds gathering around Jesus as he preached on the shore of Galilee, Lake Galilee. And Luke goes on to tell us in verse 12, that while Jesus was in one of these towns, a man came along who was covered in leprosy. He threw himself on the ground before Jesus and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And unlike our modern day celebrities, Jesus clearly didn't have any security men, or if he did, they weren't doing their job. This leper shouldn't have been allowed anywhere near Jesus, or any other self-respecting Jew for that matter. And certainly, any religious Jew just wouldn't go near a, a, a leprous person. You see, lepers were outcasts. This is probably familiar territory to most of you. But nonetheless, they were outcasts because they had this disease which was very contagious. And they were taught of as well, they were taught as being ceremonially unclean in the Jewish law. There's a whole section, Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, if you want to look, that outlines how they are dealt with. But in fact, those chapters don't really deal with how to deal with lepers as such. What they outline is, firstly, how to determine if someone has a skin disease, and secondly, what to do if someone overcomes that disease, what purification rituals they should go through. They say very little, actually, about what happens if you do have a disease, other than the reality of two very harsh sentences. They say that that person has to live alone outside of the camp of the Israelites, and... Whenever they come near anyone, they've got to cover their face and they've got to shout, unclean, unclean. 
That's who they are. And the life of a leper, or anyone with these skin diseases, is obviously very hard. They had to rely on begging. They were excluded from society. Not just, I should add, by the religious rules, but non-Jewish people wouldn't have wanted to touch them either. And it's also true to say that there would have been a kind of a a self-exclusionary principle at play. They would have not wanted their friends or family to get what they had. So they would have held themselves back too. It's an awful disease, anyway you skin it, right? It carries with it social, religious, and personal stigma. And the text today doesn't say either way, doesn't mention it, but we've no reason to believe that this leper didn't shout out his warning on arrival. He didn't shout out. Why wouldn't he have shouted out? Unclean, unclean. These lepers were the untouchables of the day. I, I, I think I'm right in saying perhaps the only equivalent that we might know of if someone was suffering from Ebola, you wouldn't want to go near them, right? It's a highly contagious, deadly disease. So then, this lowly leper throws himself before Jesus and he calls him Lord. It's hard to know exactly what he means by it. He may not have known himself what he meant by it, but this he did know. He knew that Jesus could heal people. He'd heard about it. He knew that Jesus could heal him if he wanted to. And the question in his head was, is this, does this, is this Lord, is this man going to heal me? Of course, Jesus did heal him, but not before he'd done something infinitely greater. There was something this man needed more than soft, silky skin. This man needed to be loved. He needed to be accepted once more. After years of both forced and self-regulated isolation, He needed to know the the tenderness of a human touch. There's a song, isn't there, at the moment? I can't think of it. I'm just going off the top of my head. It's been years since I've known the touch of a human hand. always gets you when I hear that. Look at verse 13. Jesus has astonished the crowd, right, and the man with leprosy, because he does the unthinkable. He touches this guy. Years of no human contact. There are lots of things in Scripture I would have liked to have seen, but this is one of them. This is one of those undoing moments where Jesus doesn't just do what's expected of a Messiah, who would, of course, be powerful and amazing. Of course he would be able to heal, but here he he goes beyond what's expected. He doesn't just work a miracle of healing for this man with one touch, but with one touch he not only heals him, he exposes the problem of everyone around him. He exposes their, their inbuilt societal ignorance and mistreatment of this guy. Friends, this, this is Jesus. This is the guy you hear about all your life, some of you. This is our God. He accepts, rejects. He touches the untouchable. He breaks all boundaries to go to those he loves. There are people here this morning who think that they're beyond the grace of God too bad, maybe. Too cynical. Too messed up. Too tragic. Don't you believe it. God's grace has got really long arms. And he touches you where you need to be touched. This is our God, folks. Jesus touches, but he also heals. 
Notice what happens when he speaks the word. There's no delay. Jesus doesn't tell the man to take a course of medication or to book an appointment at his next clinic in a month's time for a checkup. No. The man's healed completely, immediately. The message is clear. Jesus has this kind of power to heal sickness. He then sends immediately to the priest. Or he sends him immediately to the priest. Now, that might be a bit obscure, but why does he do this? Because the priest who once declared him unclean and who was the gatekeeper of society is now going to publicly and officially declare him clean. The priest who once banished this man from the presence of God and put him out of the community will tell him that his exile is over and welcome him home. That's another moment I wouldn't mind being a part of. But friends, this is what Jesus does. He brings us back to God. He brings us back into fellowship with others. He changes our whole lives. Luke keeps the the narrative moving pretty fast. In verses 17 to 26, he records this strange incident where Jesus heals this paralyzed guy. Now, if we've been paying attention, we should know that this will present Jesus with no problems. He can heal, right? Healing paralysis is well within his range of competence. It's strange then, is it not? To what, 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 does the guy, what does he say to him? And I'm going to talk about, about this more in a while. But he doesn't say, you're healed. He says, friends, your sins are forgiven. Had, there, had, he, got it, had he got it wrong? Had he not been clear what was wrong with the guy? Had someone put the man in the forgiveness of sins line instead of uh, the sickness line? You can almost imagine Peter jumping in. Hey, Jesus, come on. Look, he wants to get healed. Everyone, both the man and his friends, thought his basic need was physical. It's a dynamic that plays itself out time and time again when we approach God. We want him to heal us. We want him to heal our friends. Half our prayers are about people we know who are, who are sick and ill. We want God to give us health and happiness. But doesn't always do that. At least not in the ways we expect. There's something much more important that he wants to do first. He wants to forgive our sins. So what would you say is your biggest problem this morning? Maybe, maybe you don't have one. Well, everybody's got some problem. Is it stress at work? January credit card bills? Trouble in the marriage? Or your health? Those are heavy burdens to bear, every one of them. But none of them is your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is the same as mine. It's our sin. I generally would define it in two ways, sin that is. It's our actions that break God's laws. But it's also our general attitude, our way of living, that doesn't put God first in our life. And it puts other things, often very good things, in his place. Sin is pervasive. It's so pervasive that I, I find you almost have to resort to irony just to try and delineate it in your life. Like, for example, what's a key ingredient in being honest? Or what's the definition of an honest man? It's someone who knows how much of a liar they are. What's integral to being courageous? It's facing your fears. How do you become generous? By dealing with your greed. And sin is it's just woven into the, 
what's that phrase, woof and warp of our life. This is the area where we need to most be healed. Every single one of us here needs our sins forgiven on a daily basis. We need to hear the words that Jesus spoke to this paralytic. Friend, my son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus' response to the paralyzed man might have confused some in the crowd, but it made others angry. In verse 21, Luke tells us that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the professional religious scholars of the day thought that Jesus was somehow insulting God. Why? Well, they knew that only God could forgive sin. As far as they were concerned, Jesus was blaspheming or insulting God by pretending to be God and do the things that God does. This guy is pretending to be God. That's what they're thinking. That's why they were annoyed with him. And of course, Jesus, he knows their minds. They didn't say it out loud. They didn't have to. Jesus knew what they were thinking. So it must have astonished them when in the next verse he says, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Like the disciples, these teachers of the law would have been asking, what kind of man is this? I would say, you know, every now and again, we should be, we should be asking that question. You can't put Jesus in a box. If every now and again you don't, that doesn't go through your head, like, who is this guy? I think you're missing something. But as we know today, Jesus is no fraud. And he says to them, But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he says to the guy, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. Come on, wow! Once again, he's shown that he has power to command paralyzed people to walk. Everyone in that crowd that day and everyone who reads this account in Luke's gospel is being drawn to the same inescapable conclusion. Because Jesus has visibly demonstrated his power to heal physical illness, we can trust that he has the power to do the invisible work of forgiving sin. Jesus, and only Jesus, has the power to forgive my sin and yours. The teachers of the law were right about one thing. Only God can forgive sins. And that's precisely why Jesus can forgive sins, because he is God. It's one of the clear messages of all the Gospels. And his kingdom, or his kind of forgiveness, sorry, his kingdom has forgiveness of sins freely offered as well. The next paragraph of our reading reinforces the point that any person can come to him, that Jesus isn't too fussy about whom he calls friends, because he calls this guy Levi, a tax collector, to follow him. And Levi was shunned by his own community. Tax collectors were touts. They betrayed their own community. Collaboration with the Romans in the robbery of the Jewish state. Everyone kept their distance. Everyone except Jesus. And he invited Levi to follow him, to be in his gang. And Levi did. He got up, he left the desk, he's followed, and then the next couple of verses... We read something like the description of a leaving party. Uh, Levi's leaving his job at the tax collector's boot and he's going on the road with Jesus. You can almost imagine what's going through his mind. Maybe he shared his thoughts with Jesus and they went like this. You know, Jesus, I'm not going to miss this job, but I'll miss my mates. All of us are kind of on the outside of Jewish society. 
You know, some of them are rough. Some of them ain't got no family. Some of them have been pretty sick puppies before I hired them. But I miss them. They're my friends. And Jesus says something like, well, what's the problem? Can I meet them? You'd think, Jesus would say something like, you'd think I've come to call you into a Christian ghetto. You'd think that being with me is all about being a part of a holy huddle. Following me doesn't mean forgetting your friends. Quite the opposite. I'd like to see these guys. Will you, intru- will you introduce me to them? And so it was that Levi planned his going away party where his friends met Jesus. Yet another event that I, in Jesus' life that I'd like to go back and be at. And of course, I'm sure you know that Jesus uh, is recorded as attending lots of parties, right? But this one, uh, this one appeals to me. And Levi's there in the middle of it having a great time. And Jesus loving it too. What could be wrong? But not everyone there is happy. You read verse 30 that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Which is another way of saying, if anyone really thinks that there's anything good about this guy, that he has anything much to teach about God, then surely they're going to have to think again, because look at the company that he keeps. Has anyone ever said that to you about your life as a Christian? Complained about the company that you keep? Jesus smiles, and they just don't get it. His being among sinful people doesn't in any way compromise his mission. In fact, that's why he came. It's for people like this and for nights such as this one that he left the glory of heaven and clothed himself in skin and bone. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, he said, but the sick, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is our God. This is the kingdom that he's created. But the Pharisees... They're not religious leaders for nothing. And they come back at him. Verse 33 says that they don't take the slight on their good reputation lying down. So they ask him a question about fasting. In the middle of a party, they have the sanctimonious cheek to question Jesus and his followers about fasting. Naturally, of course, highlighting their own obedience to this rule in the asking of their question. But Jesus answers this the way he nearly always does in a way that answers both the question that was initially asked and in a way that highlights the questioner's complete lack of understanding of the wider context, which renders their question invalid and out of touch. Jesus is the master at answering. What is this wider context? Well, it's that the Lord is here. The Messiah they've all been waiting for, the groom that is God to the people of God who are his bride, is here, and he's blind Egypt's want to talk about obedience to religious rules, rules which were designed to point them to the Messiah, who's standing in front of them. And what is it about the wider context that renders the question invalid? Well, in Jesus' response, we heard a story about new wine and old wineskins. These terms we're not familiar with today, but the point again is fairly clear. You don't fit all ways into something new. And here Jesus is pointing about what he will talk about almost exclusively from now on, the kingdom of God. And his point is clear. The kingdom of God that he will start 
is much better than the old ways that they had been living in. As I said at the start, Jesus is building something new. And to do so, he has to dismantle this old building. And there's one more thing that he has to do before, we start, before he starts teaching about it. And so the next story concerns the Sabbath. And once again, it's the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, who are challenging him. Twice. And on each occasion, they accuse him of doing things on the Sabbath that he was not supposed to be doing. Firstly, they take an occasion of the disciples eating some grain as they walk through a field, as breaking a rule of working on the Sabbath. And then likewise, they criticize Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, healing a man's hand, as also doing something unlawful. The Sabbath, which was supposed to be a day to enjoy the fruits of their labor and a chance to worship God who had given them their very existence, had been changed into a long list of do's and don'ts. To the extent where even a man healed in a miraculous way is considered an infraction. If you ever go to Israel and go to Jerusalem and stand at the, the, they don't call it the Wailing Wall anymore, it's the Western Wall, which is the last wall of the temple, the remaining part of the temple. Every Friday evening, Friday evening, the Jews will come there, and at sundown, um, when, when it starts to get dark, they start dancing and singing. Because that's their way of welcoming the Sabbath in. It's a great sight, actually. Uh, and everyone joins in. All the Orthodox guys, all the non-Orthodox guys, the soldiers, randomers, and the point is that the Sabbath is supposed to be this amazing gift from God. This is illustrated of it. They, they're, they're grateful that it's coming. But what these Pharisees are doing back then is, a com- is the complete opposite of what God intended. Before Jesus goes on then to talk about what life in the kingdom is supposed to be like, he has to tackle this complete abomination of God's law because the Sabbath actually structured Jewish life almost completely. And in some ways, it's not coincidental that this passage about the Sabbath is right here before the Sermon on the Mount, because this story really shows how backwards God's people had got it at that time. Jesus comes to inaugurate a kingdom that is upside down, inside out, and better than before. At the time, the religious people said there's a strict hierarchy in society. The holy are the clean and the unclean. God is holy, some of us are clean, and all the rest of you are unclean. Those who are unclean are far from God. But Jesus showed that not only are the unclean welcome to come to him, but he actually has to come for them. Those who reckon they are clean now are put to the back of society because they're thinking they are, they are clean and they don't see any need for God. At, this, at, the, at that time, the righteous said to themselves and others, how you are perceived, what you do, what you are seen to do is of utmost importance. But Jesus showed that what's on the inside has just as, more, just as much importance. If the heart is not cleaned by God, through forgiveness of your sins by God, then your actions will always condemn you, no matter how good you think they are. In fact, in a, a fit of irony, it's only those who can admit that they are sinners and need help 
they will receive any at all, which completely rules out almost all of the religious Jews at the time because they were unwilling to do that. Now, so far as you know, so far, I, I suppose, sorry, so, no, so far, I can imagine that some of you will have enjoyed a lot of elements of these stories. Jesus comes and liberalizes the old ways. He shows we can eat and drink with the outcasts. He continually shows up these kind of prudish, conservative Pharisees, and in effect he condemns them as being out of step with God, hindering his kingdom. It's they who are his enemies and not the so-called sinners. So it would be easy, I think, and sometimes it happens, to cast Jesus as your typical left-wing kind of hero here, right? He overthrows the paradigms of the religious, brings the outcasts into the center, and spends time with the poor and the outsiders. I want to say one thing to that. Jesus heals three people in these stories. And two of them, he does so, not because they needed it or wanted it, but he did to prove a point about himself and his teaching. It would be easy enough, at times it's easy enough to read Jesus as a kind of a left-wing figure. But it would be a mistake to read him as that alone. Jesus doesn't fit our boxes so easily. In fact, he doesn't fit any of them. Sin, personal sin at that, as opposed to the sinful structures of society, is immensely important to Jesus. In fact, so important that when a paralyzed man comes to him and asks to be healed, Jesus' first reaction is to reward his faith not with healing, but with forgiveness. The typical kind of right-wing person thinks that their problem is, or their problem is, I don't need forgiveness because I keep most of the rules. But the opposite reaction is, that's also wrong, is to say, well, I don't need forgiveness because I'm not guilty of doing anything. Guilt only comes from rules which are outdated or don't apply to me. Or even the concept of rules is wrong in and of itself. But Jesus disagrees with both of those. For him, our most important need is forgiveness. So important is it that Jesus is saying to this paralyzed man, you are looking to me to give you something that you think is your deepest desire, but I can see something even more important than that. More important than you walking is for you to be forgiven. Now look, that's a strong claim right there, isn't it? I used to work with people uh, in a a care home, people in, in wheelchairs all their lives, some of them all their lives. And if I told them that far better than miraculously being healed was getting forgiveness, you know, I know that a lot of their reaction would have been, wouldn't have been positive. So how can we trust Jesus when he says things like this? How do we know he's telling the truth? Well, he's just done a few miracles, so assuming that happened, maybe you should trust him. But actually, within today's text, there is a pointer to an even greater reason. Remember when the Pharisees said to him, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? What's the answer? Which is easier to say, get up and walk or your sins are forgiven? It's easier to say, get up and walk. Because that doesn't cost Jesus anything. 
But to be able to say your sins are forgiven is going to cost him an awful lot. They were shocked that he was offering forgiveness, which is something only God does. But they should have been shocked by the offer itself. They weren't, because they didn't understand how much it's going to cost Jesus to earn this forgiveness. He's not just going to die. He's going to be tortured and murdered to earn this man his forgiveness. But more importantly, more horribly from Jesus' point of view, is that he's going to be separated from his own father when he's dying. Have you ever been in love? Have you got a wife or a husband? I don't know. A dog? Something that you love? Something that loves you? You know those moments when you're with the person you love and you feel absolutely secure? Absolutely loved by them? You take that feeling, you multiply that out to infinity... We take that moment, stretch it out to eternity, and that's the love that the Father and the Spirit have for Jesus. That is what he had to give up on the cross to earn us our forgiveness. That's what he had to do to be able to say to that man, your sins are forgiven. That's why it's harder to say. And that's why you can trust him when he teaches us all the stuff that we find in here. And next week, when we start learning stuff which is, according to the world standards, crazy, and it is, you can say, okay, I can follow this guy. He loves me. That's it. Thanks, uh, Richie. Uh, We'll uh, keep our seats uh, as we sing the next song.